Hey there, listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to Advancing Humanity. I'm your host, Charlie Peck. Please check out my new website, humanityspeaker.com. I am so excited about this. I have a new course for parents here who are struggling to connect with their teens. There is hope, parents, and this is cutting-edge material that you need to know about. I also have training materials for educators who want to better support their overwhelmed teen students. And I can bring you the unique lens of an educator, therapist, and a parent. So don't miss out on this. There'll be free events and downloads, so be sure to check it out. Again, it's humanityspeaker.com. Please also continue to connect with me on social media. I love hearing your stories, and you can follow me on Twitter at Charlie Peck, or you can find me on LinkedIn and join our Facebook group called Advancing Humanity. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, this is Charlie Peck from Advancing Humanity. You all, it's the 100th episode. I am so very excited. We launched last March in 2020, and it only made sense for us to do our 100th episode with a rock star cast here today. And we're doing the topic of the future of education. So that looks a lot of Uh, It'll look a lot different to some people, and we'll carry forward some of the similarities we've had in the past traditionally, but I think a lot of us are ready to shake things up, so I can't wait to talk about this, and you all know that I love supporting families, education, mental health, and we have excellent leadership on this panel today. So welcome, everybody. I'm so glad you're here. I'm going to go around and say your name, and when I say your name, please just tell us what your background is and who you are. I just can't wait to introduce my audience to you. Okay, Giancarlo, we're gonna start with you and you're our catalyst for change and improvement in education. And in your room on Clubhouse, which is where we all met you all, uh, you bring people together and you hear about those trends. So I'm gonna have you go ahead and unmute and talk about who you are. Sure, welcome uh, everyone and yay, 100th episode. So excited, delighted to be here with uh, with everyone and all of you listening in. Yeah, so I'm Giancarlo, uh, based in Toronto and uh, long time uh, in the education sector, over 25 years. Started uh, at the University of Toronto uh, in statistics and then uh, taught at one of Ontario's first one-to-one schools. And that's where I uh, started getting into consultancy and helping uh, districts transition to digital, first in North America, then globally. Uh, but then got into, got really interested in you know, how do shifts happen in education? And so kept pulse with those who influence the future of ed. Uh, and then, um, you know, currently the global education advisor for a large ed tech company called Smart Technologies. They invented the interactive whiteboard, but do a bunch of other uh, really cool ed tech hardware and software, uh, but also the executive director and co-founder of Catalyst. Uh, also, it's powered by Smart, very fortunate there, uh, and other organizations. And what we do is uh, we connect with organizations who uh, convene uh, government leaders, school system leaders, uh, and school leaders. And what we do is we uh, help uh, transform uh, conversations to action. So we bring people together to not just talk about change, but to, to make it a reality. So that's a bit about what I do and always love connecting and interconnecting folks uh, that are spirited in uh, transforming the future of education. Wonderful. Thank you, Giancarlo. And Kathy, Dr. Kathy O, you've got great leadership in education. Please introduce yourself. Sure. Thank you. Happy 100th. It's so good to be here. Um, I am a leadership and effectiveness coach focusing primarily on school improvement. I work with colleges of education and individual schools or districts. Uh, Most of my college of education work is what I call real world preparation and trying to bridge the gap between theory and actual classroom practice and showing what that really looks like. And then my work on the school district side is leadership coaching for principals or school leaders because everything that happens in the building is a leadership 
issue. I don't care what anybody has to say. At the end of the day, it's a leadership issue. And also what I call the, the transition years or the wonder years. I do lots of coaching of coaches, instructional coaches, helping teachers uh, get acclimated to the learning environment in the first three years. So I love this work. All I ever wanted to be is a teacher. And I'm just really glad to be a part of this discussion about the future. Great, thank you for being here, Kathy. Okay, Joy, I'm gonna go on to you. You're in global ed. You do a lot of positive psychology and uh, you're our emotional architect. Can you please uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, thank you. Well, happy 100th episode. I'm really honored to be a part of it. Um, I am an educa a global educational consultant. I'm a New Yorker living in London um, and I do a lot of work uh, internationally I work with, uh, I've been in education for 25 years and um, now I focus on working with teachers and parents to really help to develop foster, to foster a happy and flourishing environment in the home, in schools and in the workplace. I'm the founder of Positive Discipline UK and um, I basically focus on social emotional courses and products. So I'm, my big focus is on emotional learning, mindset, and well-being in schools. And I work a lot with administrators to help create a different culture in the schools. So my teaching mantra, which I love to share, is connection before correction. And so, which for me is about building relationships even before you teach. Um, and uh, that's, I think that's the primary um, focus or should be the primary focus in schools. And I really believe in, in equality, inclusivity and a student centered approach to education. So um, as a neurodiverse student myself, um, I really, it's my mission to ensure that every student feels a sense of belonging and connection and really a sense of significance in the classroom. So everything that I do is quite experiential um, because I really believe that when we experience and we are involved and we're engaged, we're really able, as, Kath, as Kathy said, you know, to take it from the classroom and apply it in our real lives. So thank you. Wow, that's great. I can't wait to hear more about that for sure. And Matt, Matt is with us from higher ed. So it's really important that we understand where we need kids to end up. So uh, Matt, you see what's lacking and you're there to help promote our youth, even for the workforce and for higher ed. So welcome. First of all, thank you for having me, Charlie. Congrats. Uh, what a great accomplishment on the 100th episode. Um, and also, you know, I'm really honored to be with uh, all the panelists. I, I sit and listen to them all the time. So it's kind of nice just to be in their presence and, and hear uh, just the, I call it golden nuggets that we always get from them. So I'm grateful for being here. Uh, you know, I've been in, uh, I've been in uh, higher ed for about 30 years. Um, you know, so I understand how universities operate. I, I know what they're doing. Uh, for the past 20 years, I've been consulting uh, large universities, large systems. Um, and then, you know, I, I worked my way through some of the, the biggest firms. And, and about three years ago, you know, I found my why. Uh, I moved myself away from just putting in systems at a large university. And I said, look, I have to reimagine the academic enterprise and I have to reimagine the campus enterprise. Um, you know, I'll be honest, three years ago, that's a tough uphill battle to, to go and talk to a provost to say, you've got to change your academic enterprise. Um, but you know, the pandemic hit and now 
you know, most provosts, presidents, chancellors are really open to reimagining the academic prize, reimagining the campus enterprise. And so I focus on future of work because that really drives what the future of education is going to be. It's going to be what do students need to learn? How do we prepare these students for that? Um, I do focus on a student-centric ecosystem. Uh, so just like Joey said, everything is about the student journey and how do we make them the hero of their journey instead of it being the, the hero of, hey, I'm, I'm a ranked university. I'm actually flipping it saying, you're the hero, let us serve you in a much different way. So I really am focused on the mid-market, the uh, HBCUs, the community colleges, and of course, any, any big university that has this innovation you know, uh, bug, we are, are totally there. So uh, I do speak about future of work, um, but I really speak about the transformation that is needed for my generation, my kids' generation, and uh, folks that will come beyond. And I'm really excited about what's in front of us. That's great. Wow. Honestly, there's so much to reimagine. And COVID has kind of given us that opportunity. That is one positive we will, we will take away from COVID. All right. So let's go ahead and talk about the gaps in education. And Giancarlo, I'm going to start with you because you're seeing a lot of trends and you're seeing a lot of investment of educators' time. And I say educators because it's about leadership. It's about teachers. It's about assistants. It's about superintendents. What are you seeing? Because you run a room of just incredible value. What are you seeing with the trends? Yeah, so I mean, it's interesting. Uh, there are lots, lots of shifts and trends always in education. And I think one trend that's consistent and will be hard to shake is, is the fact that, you know, systems, uh, education systems are pretty hard to shift, right? So uh, when you think about nationally, uh, you know, a, a country, even when they have a very progressive uh, uh, leader and, and, and staff, you know, to, to make a, a transition, even things like uh, adding whole new courses, like financial literacy, right? It's a process and it takes a lot of time. And of course, you have to keep in mind when you look at a national level, it's not just, uh, hey, what's in the best interest for the students, right? Because it's political. And so it's, you know, how is this going to be perceived in the public opinion? Uh, you know, the different stakeholders that are involved, you know, our systems, uh, you know, that, that we serve and that we give funding to, how are they going to be perceived and are they going to be able to execute on it? So it's, it's a complex process. So the first one is, you know, we have to acknowledge that uh, large system that has gone through many years of evolving and evolution and has many different pieces and sometimes they're you know not always in alignment right we have unions some are more unionized than others we have to realize that it, it is it is large and it is it does require a shift however having said that we will always find those who are trying to work within the structures to create progress and so when you look at countries and and some of the ones that are you know kind of at the forefront and you know joy will be happy to, to hear about about this you know and also matt you know and, and he'll chime in with kind of future of work there is this for the first time one thing i'm noticing is this intersection between our acknowledgement about the the upskilling of our workforce and the shift in nature of our skilled employee workforce and how we're upskilling them intersected with you know shifts that are happening with higher head and intersected with you know uh, k through 12 systems that are realizing hey what are we preparing students for and what are the skills that that are important in our current programs uh, developing uh, the right skill set in our youth to to you know go to those programs and then to be successful contributing citizens and so one trend that i you know i'll bring to the forefront as a starter for us is this concept and recognition that you know to the traditional academic literacy numeracy science they're still important we still need to develop those foundational elements 
But there's these other skills that are taking forefront and countries are starting to look at and have already shifted their policy towards how might we make sure that, you know, while a math teacher is preparing, you know, to teach their students quadratics, they're also doing within the framework of, you know, being a collaborative citizen and being able to effectively communicate and articulate themselves. And so we're seeing this at a policy level. We're seeing this at an assessment level. Schools are having to report on this. So that's a that's a big shift and big trend that I've noticed. Um, and, you know, and, and it's going to be further instigated when, you know, organizations like OECD, who do the international assessments of, of literacy and numeracy, they're coming out with a report in a couple months, the first ever global analysis of 10 and 14 year olds on their social and emotional skills. So that's one that I'll kind of start us off with that, that I've noticed is a big, big shift. But, but those are two that I'd say are trends that we have to be attuned to. One, systems are tough, right? When you look at nationally or even within a school system or school district or family of schools, there's, there's a lot of moving pieces that we need to account for. Uh, and then the other one is, you know, there are new um, movements in the right direction toward developing the types of learners that we all aspire for for our own kids, right? So uh, those are two that I'd, I'd start off with. Yeah, that's great. And Dr. Kathy, I know you have a lot of experience fostering that kind of growth on the leadership level. So what do you do or what do you advise your leaders? Sure. So, um... A lot of it has to do with uh, diversity of practice. So believe it or not, we just assume in teaching that when a new teacher comes into the profession, they automatically know what they're supposed to know. Um, and we expect them on the first day of the job to do what we expect of those who've been teaching 10, 15, and 20 years. So when I work with school leaders, I talk to them about um, diversity of practice and how teachers really do need an opportunity to learn and see demonstrated various methodologies in the classroom and how to align them with student learning, you know, how to differentiate instruction, how to really look at data and, and they're being taught to analyze data, but they're not being taught how to apply that to their instructional decision-making. And so they sometimes don't know to ask for it because they're just doing the best that they can do. And I say to school leaders all the time, if you're waiting for teachers to tell you, I don't know what I'm doing and I need help, that day is not coming. So the onus <laughs> is upon the leader then to say, I see so much uh, potential in you and you're doing a great job and here's how you can do it even better. And so then that lends itself toward what I call differentiated professional development. Gone is the day where everybody in the building just gets the same professional learning. And it doesn't have to cost more but school leaders have to be intentional about doing it. And so that gets at everything Giancarlo said about literacy and numeracy and teachers having the right kind of training and support to be effective at this in the classroom. Hmm, that makes sense to invest in your new teachers too, absolutely, and use that wisdom to carry that over. Thanks for sharing that, that's great. So Joy, what, do, what kinds of skills do you think that our youth actually need to be infused in our system moving forward to make them really thrive in the future? So, I, you know, it's interesting, and I'm, I'm just going to build on what Giancarlo shared. You know, many of the skills that our world's business and government leaders would really define as essential for effectiveness in the modern workplace, right? The ability to function as a part of a team, to work with diverse colleagues and customers, to analyze and generate solutions to problems, um, to be able to persist in the face of challenging setbacks. All of those skills are social-emotional skills. I mean, and, and I've seen firsthand how these skills can really 
form a foundation for a young person's success, not just in school, but also as productive workers, as parents, and as global citizens. And, you know, being an educator for 25 years, many of my students, I can't tell you how often I've heard my students describe their school experience as one that prepares them for a life of tests, rather than one that is preparing them for the tests of life. And I really feel that it's our role as educators and school leaders to make sure that all students will receive all of what they need in order to be caring, loving, you know, and committed citizens that we really need them to be right now. So, and I think building on what Kathy shared is, you know, this starts with the leadership in the school. Um, and I would agree, we do make assumptions that teachers, and I think also, um, we make assumptions that parents are teaching these skills at home. We make assumptions that by the time a child reaches middle school or secondary school, they've already been taught these skills. And what we forget is that these are life skills. They call them life skills because they take a lifetime to learn and we never master them. Even as adults, we're still learning and growing and practicing these skills. So I think that would be, um, some of what we need to look at. And probably Matt can build on that a bit when we talk about the higher education. Absolutely, thank you, Joy. That's exactly what I was gonna do is, is ask Matt, I mean, how much emphasis is there on problem solving in SEL skills? Yeah, you know, I think at this stage, I always say, uh, at least at the university and even at K through 12, we're on an earn it model, right? We're not on the learn it model. We're, we're having everyone follow you know, a certain like criteria or, or, or requirement to get to the next level where we're not really assessing what they're learning and what, how can they actually take that competency and build on it. Um, so one is um, we got to move from an earn it model to a learn it model. It's simple as that. The, the, the more that we do a more personalized learning um, path is, is when we'll really drive it. And the other thing is, and, and it's not a one size fit all like a t-shirt, right? Uh, we all learn differently. We have five learning chemistries that we all may either take one or all of it, right? From, you know, visual or audio or contextual or, or speaking is one, right? So there's these, these concepts that are there that we really we need to understand and say, hey, what is right for me? How do I learn that content? with maybe I'm much more visual, I'm much more auditory, I'm not contextual, I don't write well, but I wanna be able to use that. So I always look at it as how do we shape that? The other element here is, uh, and, and Dr. LeBlanc, and I always quote him on this, he's, he's the president of Southern New Hampshire University. He says, time is the enemy of the poor. And what he means by that is we put time frames on everybody. You have to do this at this point in time. You have to do it in six weeks. You have to be at class Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Well, he said, you know, the, the poor have a harder time in time frames because they have two jobs or they can't get to the campus because of, of, of they don't have money to get on a bus, right? There's all these constraints that we put on them. And I'm a big believer if we move away from the earn it model, allow for a fit for purpose education and then allow for time to be on the side of the learner on their pace on their path like i have a little bit of add of course going through 
um, grade school and high school was miserable for me. Why? Because I was sitting in a room and I was, my attention span wasn't there. Now today, I use that as an advantage. I can do things four, four, four or five times faster than most people because I'm able to do it in so many different ways. So I think some of it is, you know, we box students into the earn it model and we keep them there. We gotta, on, we gotta take them out of that, allow them for a fit for purpose, allow them to feel the passion that they need because they're all gonna be winners if we allow them to have their purpose in life as we move forward and not box them in. Wow, how powerful, how powerful that is. Thank you for sharing all of that, Matt. And you kept bringing up the word purpose. And we have to really understand what the purpose of education is then when we reimagine it. So I'd love to hear from you all. So Giancarlo, I'd love to start with you here. What do you then think the purpose of education is moving forward in our society? Mm, yeah, it was I had, it's funny, I had this conversation with, uh, if, if you know, those of you that know Mark Prensky coined the term uh, digital native, digital immigrant. And he always pushes people to think, I think we have to start by perhaps defining a new term, right? Because when we think about education, we think about the traditional, like what Matt was talking about, time bound, age specific. And, and if we're if we're really talking about the development of humans, right? Or I don't know what new word we're gonna use, right? But if we're, if we're gonna talk about how we develop human beings, this starts from the moment we're born and it doesn't end until the moment we die, right? And there's some countries like China, for example, right? They have a program where they're gonna track, there's gonna be this, this platform that you're gonna track any and all learning interactions from the moment you're born to the moment you die, because we never stop learning. And to Matt's point, there's gonna be different mechanisms that we use to learn. And so, if we think about this concept of development, it's, it's around human development and what do we need to thrive as humans? And with, first, it's a recognition that we all come from different places and spaces. And some of us, all of us on this call, and probably most of us that are going to listen to us, we have the great fortune of likely being born into a community or, or a place where we had nutrition and nourishment. We had the opportunity to have access to, to mentors and to models. Not everybody in the world has that access. So I think the first thing is the global recognition that not all kids are as fortunate. Some kids are, are not just learning deprived, but are nurse deprived. And if you're nurse deprived, you can't even learn. And they even show by the time you're age three, the neurological connections, the differences between these kids who have just been nourish deprived, not to mention uh, uh, a parentally deprived, right? Those human connections that are forged at the age of zero to three, we have to tackle that, right? And so I would think, you know, uh, when we think about human development, we think about from the moment that a child is born, how do we make sure we're creating the opportunities for every single human being that come some, comes into this planet to have opportunity? And I think that's what I'll, I'll highlight is that this concept of education is about opportunity and how we create every single opportunity, regardless of where someone comes from. They're able to thrive into the person, not who they believe they can be, right? Because that's often a lot less than who they could be. And so we have to create opportunities where they, where they see themselves and they see the potential of what their contribution could be to society. Um, but it's our job, when I say our, it's, it's those of us that are in a position where we can create the spaces, create the systems, create the funding, where we create these opportunities to identify and, and nourish every single's poten everybody's potential, regardless of where they come from, right? And when we start with that lens, then what we do, and if we serve those who are in, in most need, I'm even talking about some of our students, you know, with disabilities. And if we focus on how we're serving the person, 
then what we do is create systems, instructions, and opportunities for everybody to thrive and for everybody to succeed. And it has to be done with a lens different than how we do it today, which is creating restrictions and boundaries because it's time bounded. Oh, you don't know how to read yet. I can't let you go into grade two, right? You have to stay back. And then, and then we get into the psychology of, well, then I'm not good enough and maybe I'm not a good enough citizen or contributor. So I think it starts at, at how we approach um, uh, what it means to to develop humans and creating the conditions and opportunities uh, to do that. And the ultimate goal, the ultimate goal is so that everybody feels like they're a contributor in whatever way that is, and that they feel that they're adding value to their communities, to their families, to their friends, and to into the broader to the broader world. So, um, and that could look very different. And so what what is our job? What is the job of this this um, uh, these opportunities you put in front of these learners to be able to get there. Wonderful. Yeah, that's definitely very purposeful. Wow. Kathy, can you jump on that and, and give us your lens of, of what purpose has been? Yeah, I love it. I love everything Giancarlo just said. Um, I wrote a note as he was talking that perhaps purpose is um, understanding what your contribution is or what your role is as a contributor. And I'm someone who's grown a little bit weary over the last few years of pursue your purpose, know your passion, you know, and while I understand it, it has become so cliche, but he, for me, has just put a totally different definition on what we mean now by lifelong learners. And that is not just um, 12 to 16 or even more years of learning stuff and learning information. It's coming into a deeper understanding of who you are in this world as a contributor. Um, my husband, who has a um, ministry worship background and music as well as years as a behavior specialist in an inner city talks all the time about um, children wanting to be a thing for all the wrong reasons and neglecting what it is that they're really capable of and when he first said to me one day um, if people could become what they really can be if they would let go of what they want to be or what they think they want to be. And I first saw that kind of as a negative because I looked at it as that whole, if you put your mind to it, if you can see it, you can be it. But you know, in the classroom, we need to create opportunities for students to pursue what it is that they really have, uh, want, want to become as a contributor and what they have to offer. So like uh, Giancarlo said, there are too many young people out here who want to be an attorney because their father is or a, a cook or a chef because their mother is, but then they end up neglecting their phenomenal gift in music or art or mathematics. So I love that. I think this new education focus of what we're going to call it in the future has to really hone in on uh, their being a key contributor in the world and not just doing more stuff that they learned at school. Thank you for that. Wow, I heard opportunity, I heard contributor, and what it does is it does get back to that student focus, that student-centric. So Joy, I'd love to hear your take on this then. Does SEL, um, from that perspective, the SEL perspective, is purpose the same for education from that perspective or is there something different that we're missing? Well, 100%, I was here saying yes, 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 as I was listening to Giancarlo and Kathy speak. Um, you know, my background comes from um, Adlerian psychology and Rudolf Dreikers, who was a student of Alfred Adler, he said, we cannot protect our children from life, 
So it's essential to prepare them for it. And that's essentially what social emotional learning is. And Giancarlo mentioned the two very basic human needs that we all have as human beings, aside from, as Giancarlo mentioned, our basic needs of food and shelter. We need to make sure those basic needs are being met. That is our pastoral job as educators and schools. And on top of that, we need to make sure that every single student feels a sense of belonging in our classroom, in our school, in our community. And that means they feel connected. We also need to make sure that every student feels a sense of significance, which really essentially means they are contributing. They are all contributing in their way. They all have a sense of purpose to the greater good. They called that, um, Alfred Adler called that Gemeinschaftsgefühl, which means social interest, right? So I think that's a really big piece. And I think if we go back to the, 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 the root, the Latin root of education, a jacare, which means to draw forth. It means to draw forth. And we have somehow in education, we've, we've, we've spent a lot of time trying to stuff in information, right? And I think, you know, it's our job as educators to really bring out the best in each student, to encourage them to reach their potential, which is going to be different and unique for each student. So effective education has to really support a student's holistic academic, social, and emotional development. We know that. And, you know, my belief, the reason I call myself an emotional architect is I really believe that when the emotional foundation is strong, you can build anything on that foundation. When the emotional foundation is strong, you can build anything on that foundation. So, you know, we really need to, you know, enable students with agency. We want them to take purposeful action to really improve their own lives and influence the world around them, right? So that's going back to that social interest, you know, self and others. So I would say absolutely 100% social emotional is um, and should be um, wove it into everything really that we do in schools. Absolutely. Wow. I keep hearing connection. I keep hearing agency, contributions, purpose, purpose, purpose. I love it. Matt, from a higher ed perspective, what uh, is the purpose of education? You know, um, there's a quote I've been, I just put out on my LinkedIn, um, not even a quote, just a thought. I said the campuses are going to be more it's going to be less about what you learn, but about how you learn, right? So, so when I look at this, the, the, the way that I look at this is, there's a quote, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. Teach him how to fish, you feed him for life. So let's just take that and break that down to, to what the what is the fish. When you're teaching somebody at a university or even K through 12, what the what is, you're giving them a fish. You're giving them what they need to know at that moment, a skill, a knowledge, a qualification, it's a what. But man, if we could teach them how to learn, we're allowing them to feed themselves for life. If you think about it, that's where the potential comes in. That's where the journeys begin. Because life is a ocean of what I would say opportunities. And we have these sails that we have to put up and that's the direction we're gonna go based on that. And those sails is allowing you to navigate through learning in different ways, through the rough times, through new skills that are gonna come, new jobs are gonna come. 
if, if they only know the what, we're only feeding them for a day. If, they are, if they're able to understand how to learn, how to adapt, how to pick up knowledge, how to take on the next you know, dynamic work um, shifts, we're gonna feed them for life. Love it, love it. And I think we all share that same belief. I think that we all share what purpose is, what the purpose of education is, and that we need a shift in education. That's a very common theme. I keep hearing it over and over. So let's talk about what those barriers are. What are the barriers to making those changes? And then how do we overcome those? I'm gonna start with you, Kathy, because I know that you're at the board level, um, the district level, and you, you have a sense of what those barriers are. Sure, so we don't give individual schools enough autonomy, and I'm writing about this right now. If we look really closely at education policy at any level, state boards of education, local school districts, individual business, private, parochial, you decide. But when we look at policy at any level, there is always another policy or two that undercuts or flies in the face of, of an individual policy always. Um, if we say that teachers must stay in the building by a certain period of time, then there's another rule that interferes with staying in the building past a certain time and all, how teachers get paid, all of those things. So one of the things we have to deconstruct is all the idea that we put all these parameters and policies, policies in place that are going to guide education forward and make it more effective. What we need to do is pull back, loosen the reins and give school leaders and leadership teams in their building autonomy to create and to create space. So that means if Kathy is consistently getting in trouble for the same thing, then we need to figure out, get down to the bottom of, and the right people in the building need to do this. What is really going on with her? I'm using myself as an example here in third person, but you all get the point. Just really get the wraparound support of how do we get this student on the course she wants to be on. For me, that was being a writer my entire life, reading and writing. So the classes where I would not be paying the most attention or would choose not to because I didn't understand would have been at that time math classes where teachers think if you don't get it, they just work the problem again, doing nothing different. So I'm saying that to say, this is a time where perhaps high school could have been like college where I spent four years in college and took two math courses in every English class I could take, whether it was re required or an elective, as opposed to high school, where I'm worried my freshman year, how will I get through trigonometry? I just shouldn't have been thinking about that at 14 years old, you see what I mean? So, you know, that's a low level example, but I'm saying we have to give the individual school building online or in, per or in person more autonomy. Uh, Bell Hooks calls it freedom thinking and freedom to transgress, really, to be a disruptor, to say here at our school, we're going to make this work for this student or this teacher who has this issue is really good at something else. And we're going to direct that into what is good for that teacher and what is good for the students they serve. The schools need that kind of autonomy. That's great. Wow. Okay, Giancarlo, your take on, on barriers. Yeah, and I'll piggyback off of what uh, Kathy was saying, because it, it's so important how our, you know, your let's, let's put it personal, right? Our only barrier to doing something more impactful is ourselves. And so, so from Kathy's perspective, as a system leader, how are you creating the opportunities to empower the people within your system, whether it's your school leaders or your teachers or your parents or your students themselves, 
to take ownership of it, right? Like one thing that I noticed, like the, the biggest barrier, because I see, you know, whether it's a school, same region, same access, the same fundings, but one school is like flying, same demographic area. One school is flying. The performance is incredible. The community they forge is amazing. The other school is floundering. Why did that happen? When you look at what's at there, it's what people decided to do with what they were given. They were given the same things, but it's how they made those choices that differed. You look the same thing as countries, right? That are similar, similar funding, similar ethnic, you know, uh, backgrounds, but some countries have like fast forwarded and others haven't. Why, why is that? Well, it's the choices that people make when they're similar positions. And so I would say, you know, whether you're at a government level or you're at a school system level, or you're at a school level, or you're at a school, you know, a classroom level, or you're a parent or you're a student, I'm going to highlight the student. We need more student advocates. We do not have enough. We need more students that are advocating for themselves. But but everyone in that in that role has a role to play. And so I think what I'm saying is that it's our own mindsets about our abilities to be the ones who actually start creating those shifts in those changes um, rather than waiting for it. And part of that, part of that has to do with, I don't, I think one of the bears is we're not a very collaborative minded culture, right? I think school has, has popped us out to be very individualistic. So when we see a problem or challenge, we either blame someone else and we say, okay, let me try to solve it. And we go at it ourselves and we don't, we'd work with others. Where if you look at all the evidence, right? So we look at large scale, hundreds of thousands of data of some school systems or schools or students that perform higher than others. And you look at the variable for um, in-class or in-school variability versus cross-school variability. What the, basically what it means is the ones who adopt a more collaborative culture always outperform those who don't. Right. And you see this as well. Who else did it? John Hattie did the largest meta-analysis of all the studies of, you know, any study, any meta-analysis that's ever been done on uh, impact on student learners for the last 20 years, they've been collecting it. And what comes to the top? It's all the practice that relate with collaborative groups of educators reflecting on their impact. Right. So it's when people look at what they have in front of them, regardless of whether you're a school a teacher or you're an administrator or system leader, and you say, okay, given the context that I'm in, the box that I'm in, what can I do with this box? with the goal of changing this particular outcome. And then they take action and they don't do it by themselves. So I would say those are the bears, it's the mindsets. And then it's this, you know, uh, not, uh, not enough times do we develop a collaborative culture of working with each other to kind of create new, in, new forms of impact uh, and, and then and evaluating ourselves on how we're going at it, right? That, that, would, be, uh, that would be what I've been noticing. Yeah, that's fantastic, wow. Okay, Joy, so what are your thoughts there then? Wow. So, I mean, I was jotting notes. It was interesting when Kathy brought up the autonomy of schools. Immediately, I thought to myself, this is exactly why as, a, as an educational consultant, I work primarily with independent schools because they have that autonomy. And I don't have to deal. I, I worked in New York City with the Department of Education. I worked at Rikers Island and with the New York City Department of Probation. And, and I was, it was miraculous that I was able to get this, you know, the programs that I taught in there, um, but it took a lot. And I was so burnt out and exhausted of all the red tape and the bureaucracy that when I decided to go off on my own, I just took the easier route, the, the route of least resistance, which meant that people were ready. So building on Giancarlo's thought about mindset, you know, that's one of the biggest barriers is that fear. Um, and, and, you know, that comes from a long time of just, you know, that again, that testing and we have to get the outcomes because we need to get the funding and all of that. So, you know, in my mind, 
what I've noticed when it comes to social emotional learning is that this in many schools, this is like an add on, right? It's a, it's, it's a course, right? A separate course that, that only a handful of students take. And when we think about everything we've talked about today, understanding self, others, global issues, perspectives, all of that can be integrated as a lens because that's what social emotional learning is for teaching in all content areas. And I think that's something that we need to think about. When you look at the, the five essential areas of social emotional development, it's self-awareness, self-management, but then the rest of it is about others, social awareness, relationship skills, responsible decision-making. And that really needs to be embedded. Students need those tools, not only so they can be effective learners, but so that they can be effective human beings, right? So, you know, they learn all of those skills of focusing, you know, their attention, setting and, and persisting towards goals and working effectively with others. As Giancarlo said, that collaboration piece, making decisions, creative problem solving, negotiation, all of those skills. And so when I, I'm able to go into schools and teach social emotional learning, it's interesting because I start with the adults in the building. I, I don't start with the young people. I start with the adults because if the leadership, if, if the adults in the building are not able to have the self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, relationship skills, it's not going to impact the students, right? It has to start with us and, and the modeling piece. And so I'm able to do that when I go into schools where I don't have those barriers. And so I would agree that you know, the policies, um, you know, it needs to change. But the good news is, I'll just end it with this, I think it's become abundantly clear to many, um, at least I'm speaking here in the UK, that the healthy social emotional development of a student is, is probably one of the most or the most essential components of a child's success in school and in life. So I think there is a shift happening um, to make sure that schools not only help students academically, but they're helping them um, be socially emotionally competent and engage lifelong learners. So uh, it's happening, but it is, a, it is a difficult shift to make. And I think we do have, it has to come from a policy piece that this is not just, we're gonna tick the boxes of these core you know, components that we think kids should learn. This has to be embedded um, as a culture, as a community. Wow, yeah, and it goes back to what you said about the emotional foundation of the student. Right. And Matt, are there similar barriers or is it a little different in, in higher ed? No, policy. Um, I would say policy, incumbents, and a lack of entrepreneurship. All three are, are the key. And I'll just explain policy, right? Um, policies are written, uh, have, have just been rolled over, meaning they've just gone from tradition and it's rolled over. The people who wrote those policies and the people who write them today are the same people sitting around the same table that look the same, that think the same, that are educated the same. They have no outside perspective. They only know what they know. So of course, if I have five Matt Alexes telling you what I think we should do next, I will never have anything beyond what I think. And that's one of the big issues that we have. The other thing is the policies that were written. So the way that I look at this is, um, in the 90s and the 2000s, when technology was coming in, uh, technology was trying to catch up to policy and procedures because they, those were pretty dynamic. We had to, so they were applying technology to that. It's actually reversed now. 
we're now having technology that is so advanced that our policies and procedures haven't caught up to what we actually can do. That the fact that we can take attendance anywhere, anytime, Starbucks knows when I walk in the door and yet in a classroom, I can't automate tech, uh, um, attendance. Not because it's not there, we just don't apply it, right? And, then, and, that, and that becomes what I would call an incumbent ecosystem. An incumbent doesn't want it to change. It benefits them. It's the what they, they want to make sure it's status quo because they want to have it until they retire and let people deal with it up. But that's the same mindset you will have as you move forward. And then the entrepreneurship, the fact that there's lacking that, no one looks beyond what we should be innovating. How should we do it? We're teaching our students to be innovative, but yet in our classroom and our administration, we're not innovative. The future of work is gonna require that. And until we get a entrepreneurial mindset in higher ed, in K through 12, you're gonna be producing the same students that are boxed in, defaulted into a major, into a career that isn't nimble enough for them to really take on the journeys that they're gonna to have to embark on. Wow, wow, there's just so much. There's so much there. Okay, so we're actually wrapping it up now. That's how quickly that went by. What I'd like everybody to do is have a final thought here in just one sentence in the essence of time. And Giancarlo, we're gonna put you on the spot. We're gonna have you go first. So could you uh, unmute and go ahead and tell us your final thoughts? Oh, I was like furiously like writing all these great nuggets from everybody. So I'm going to try to pull in some of the concepts that that we all shared uh, today. And I think final thought when we think about, you know, uh, future future of uh, learning paradigms and, and you know, uh, impact that we're trying to get at and the barriers behind them. You know, I really think it's a time where we start and I'll you know, Matt mentioned this one, you know, we start looking beyond what we're learning right what we're teaching what what the the institutions are are you know sharing with learners and we start helping understand the concept and the process of how we learn but i think we go a step further it's with how we help um apply those concepts and how we create spaces where there's active uh, application of these concepts that we've learned and i think the further step beyond that is even the evaluating our impact, right? So going to what Joy mentioned about these human, this human condition, it not just, you know, we get past the, the certainty of, you know, food and shelter and then connection. It's how are we helping people see their growth? How are we helping people see their abilities to contribute and add value to themselves, but to their communities and, and then beyond? So uh, I would say those are the last pieces. And then from an institution perspective, you know, what Kathy talked about is so key is this concept of if we're going to go down that path, how we make sure we hyper-focus on how we implement something like that and realize that it's a human process. How do we develop capacity in our, in our, in our, uh, in our staff uh, to make those mind shift shifts and then for them to create the spaces uh, that enable it. So that's my kind of synthesis of different pieces that I, that I heard here today. Love it. Dr. Kathy, go right ahead. Sure, I, I have dedicated my work not only now as a consultant, but since I started teaching in an eighth grade classroom years ago to school-based problem solving. And I think if we don't take that seriously, if we don't really see it as a thing, um, education is not going to change. And what I mean by school-based problem solving is in all the work I've done with teachers and colleges in 46 states, a majority of the time, 
teachers and a team of instructional leaders in that building will say, we could have told them that. We just saw this with the onset of the pandemic where I had friends who are educators literally laughing, saying, did you watch the school board meeting? This is a complete joke. That's not going to work. They were saying that they sat in meetings virtually with the principal and listened, and they were writing to each other privately in the chat box, I give this three days and he'll change his mind. And that is because the people who do this work every day know the work better than anybody else. So I'm just dedicated to school-based problem solving and in my work with schools and, and colleges of education, schools of education, I sit down with the team as a coach and they know when I sit down at the table, we're going to figure this out together. And when this meeting is over, we're going to have a solution and two possibles, a solution and two maybes. But at the end of the day, give us a few months, we can solve the problem. So school-based problem solving, I think is critical to the future and the autonomy to do so uh, and the space to, to not think outside the box, but to think in the box and look at what all the tools are that will help change things is really critical moving forward. Wonderful. Wow. Okay, Matt, go ahead. I'd love to hear your final thoughts. You know, I, I use the word, um, I always start with the, the prefix on. Um, we got to unhook status quo. We have to unlearn what we know and think is right. We have to get into uncomfortable conversations to make us transform. And we have to understand who we're really serving. If we use those prefixes and allow for us to really move forward, you will see us change the way we educate, change people's lives. And that's what's going to drive us as we move forward. Wow. Okay. Thank you. And Joy, go right ahead. Final thoughts. We'll end with we'll end with you. Wow. How do you even follow up with that? Um, woof. So I, I'll just share one thing that I, I think we didn't mention about teaching students content through authentic tasks and real world experiences. Really empowering students with that autonomy and that agency so that they can take purposeful action in their own lives and really thinking about how they can influence the world around them. And this was taught, and you know, Kathy, you brought up the school-based problem solving. I, I mean, this was taught by Alfred Adler over a century ago. We are only just now waking up and starting to catch up to this, you know? So we have to sometimes go back and, 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 um, and find those roots. I think we need to go back to those roots. So this has been such an incredibly rich conversation. Thank you all so much. Well, thank you all so much for being here for the 100th episode for the future of education. And uh, I appreciate it so much. If you look at the show notes, all their information will be there if you'd like to get in touch with everybody on this panel. Thank you all very much, I appreciate it. There you have it for Advancing Humanity. This is Charlie Pack, your host, and thank you so much for listening. Please rate this podcast. Also, check out my new website, humanityspeaker.com. I am so excited about this. I have a brand new course called Taming Teen Conflict for parents of teenagers who want to have more peace in their home and who want to reconnect with their teen. There are also brand new training opportunities for high school educators there too. It's nothing like you've experienced before. So go to humanityspeaker.com to get some free materials and to check out those resources. 
Connect with me on social media as well. I'm on Twitter at Charlie Pecked, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And we'd love for you to join our Facebook group called Advancing Humanity. Thanks so much for being here.